Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing author Lotta Dan, and the two of them will be discussing her best-selling memoir, Mrs. D is Going Without. It's an inspirational tale of self-transformation, addiction, and domesticity. So tune in and hear the entirely unexpected solo journey Mrs. D in the first year of her sobriety and how her life has changed in the years since. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we are here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. KKNW out of Seattle, as well as 103.3 FM KPCA in Petaluma, California. We're here bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access the show archives. You can find those at 1150kknw.com. So my guest today is blogger and author Lotta Dan. Uh, She goes by Mrs. D, and Mrs. D is the name that Lada gave herself when she began anonymously blogging in 2011. Through her long-running blog, Mrs. D is Going Without, Lada discovered the incredible power of online support for people quitting drinking. Her best-selling memoir by the same name, Mrs. D is Going Without, which is what we'll be talking about in large part today, uh, tells the story of her recovery uh, and published in 2014 and later that same year, Uh, launched Living Sober, uh, an online community where you can talk safely and honestly with others about your relationship with alcohol. Living Sober takes all of the powerful aspects Lotta discovered about online recovery and condenses it into one space, making it readily accessible for thousands of people so that they can also turn their lives around. And if you would like to check out that site, you can find it at livingsober.org.nz for New Zealand. She is out of New Zealand. Uh, So that's livingsober.org.nz. Her follow-up book to Mrs. D is Going Without is called Mrs. D is Going Within, and we'll touch on that today. And she's got a new book coming out in 2020 uh, called Wine O'Clock is a Crock, and I can't wait to ask her more about that. Um, Lotta, welcome to Sunny in Seattle. Hi, Sunny. Nice to be here. Yes, we're so glad to have you. And I just want to do a little preface before we dive in because, you know, listeners who have been with me for a while may have noticed, and I'm not shy about saying this, that for the past several years, I've been a bit obsessed with addiction memoirs, uh, recovery memoirs. And um, I've I've interviewed, let's see, Annie Grace and uh, Amy Dresner, and I think there are a few more. I've got another one coming up in uh, January called We Are the Luckiest by Lori McCowan. And uh, the reason that this keeps coming up, as my regular listeners know, is because I have been, for the past several years, exploring my relationship with alcohol. And as I begin to learn more about it, outside of the programming that I think is pretty inherent in our culture about alcohol being necessary for any human life, and especially if you want to have fun, um, I'm really questioning that. And um, a lot of the people that I'm interviewing have done the same thing. Um, Some have quit at different points in their journey, quit drinking or quit using drugs or whatever it is at certain points in their journey, uh, different places. And I've enjoyed hearing how those people made that decision or perhaps it was made for them at a moment of rock bottom awareness. Um, And so I just want to give a little bit of background here. So even if you don't identify as being a problem drinker, even if you are very comfortable with your relationship with alcohol, or perhaps you've been sober for many years, I'm bringing this forward because one of the things that I notice in my coaching practice, um, there is a certain uh, system of inquiry that I use quite frequently from Byron Katie. And Um, what we have discovered along the way is that when people are believing um, limiting beliefs, fearful thoughts, painful thoughts, often um, there is a reaction to that in the form of a compulsive behavior. Um, And this also is a way to um, avoid feeling what we feel and knowing what we know. And I like to call this buffering. It's a term that I uh, got from Brooke Castillo, but call it what you want, distraction, numbing, buffering. It's really any behavior that you engage in that 
keeps you from feeling what you feel and knowing what you know. And it could be the things that we all know, the usual suspects, drinking, drugs, whether that's recreational or prescription, um, nicotine, sugar and carbohydrates, shopping, gambling, sex, porn, um, the, even some of the more benign ones, binging on Netflix or scrolling mindlessly through social media for hours. All of these things have a tendency to create um, a, a big old dopamine effect in the body, which is a heck of a lot more pleasant. And we seek that um, quite um, intensely. We have urges for that. And of course, that's a heck of a lot easier. That's an easy button, you know, instead of feeling the, the uncomfortable emotions that as a human, we're liable to feel about 50% of the time if you're in a human body. So even if you don't identify today with exploring your relationship with alcohol, I invite you to look at this from the lens of what behaviors, compulsive behaviors, do you engage in to buffer? And noticing how, you know, Lada used a certain amount of awareness in her own journey to be onto herself and to change. And her transformation has been incredible. I, I adored her memoir, Mrs. D is Going Without, which is why I reached out to her to have her on the show to discuss this. Um, and I also think it's interesting because there is a there's a new sobriety movement out there. And I think Lada is in many ways, I, I look forward to hearing her thoughts on this, but at least from my interpretation, um, really uh, leading the way in exploring one's relationship with alcohol. Um, and if 12-step if programs have been of great benefit to you. That is amazing. Um, my dad is one of those people who has been sober for over 50 years now because of a 12-step program, and he is still living and breathing it and helping others along the way. But um, if 12-step does not resonate for you, which it doesn't for everyone, um, then we're going to talk about some other ways to approach this, and Lada is living proof that it can be done. Um, and her journey was quite unique. So with all that said, <laughs> Lada, um, I want to turn now to you and your story. Um, you know, you you um, are a lovely lady from New Zealand. You have a husband who is in the spotlight as a TV anchor, uh, lead anchor personality there. And you, at the time that you that you began looking at your relationship with alcohol, you were nice and educated, articulate, well-groomed, a suburban housewife, and you didn't really fit the description of what many people might consider as an alcoholic. And I'm, I, I, I'm curious from where you sit, how did you come to know that you had a problem? And can you tell us a little bit about your life at that time? Looks really good from the outside, high functioning, but perhaps not so great on the inside. It looked very, you know, good on the outside. Like you said, I was married to a man who was, had a profile on the television. We had children, we had a house. I was studying for my master's degree you know, all the boxes were ticked. And I looked, physically, I looked pretty good. But this is the incredible thing, isn't it? You know, that so often our outsides don't match our insides. And in truth, I was completely drowning in a sea of alcohol. And I was really miserable in my own head. And I'd been that way for a good two years before I stopped drinking. And what I had was this nagging little voice in my head telling me this isn't right there's something wrong here there's something wrong here and it was 3 a.m waking up feeling hungover and miserable and guilty because I'd finished that second bottle again mm -hmm. and this little voice of worry and and it, like I say it took a good two years which is a long time of this inner dialogue going on, that little voice slowly getting louder and louder. I was still drinking more and more. It was increasing, but I was still living this very successful, high-functioning life. Um, but just having this conflict in my head, and this is what I, I think is so hard for people to realize, is so much of the struggle is internal. And we do think of the, uh, the classic alcoholic as the person that you can see very clearly from the outside they're struggling. Those people are at the far end of the spectrum. But I personally believe there's lots of us who are back along that spectrum running these quote-unquote successful lives, but actually in reality, privately in our own heads, struggling. Yes, and I am curious, Lotta, because... It I hear this a lot in my practice. I do work with a lot of women, so I can't, uh, but you know what I have to say in my support groups that I've run, which are pretty much equally men, um, 
this comes up so much. And, and just from your own, I know you've done some research on what, you know, the institutes of health in various countries are saying about this, but anecdotally or from your research, how many people do you think really are struggling behind closed doors with this? Because I think it's far more than what we are led to believe. Well, I do too. But how do we know? I mean, I can tell you anecdotally, I'm, people reach out to me every single day. I get new strangers reaching out to me through my social media, through the Living Sober website, saying to me, I'm struggling. No one knows. My husband doesn't know. You know, my family think I'm fine, but I'm really miserable. We've got the statistic in New Zealand, which says 80% of New Zealanders um, drink alcohol, but only a small fraction of them um, are doing so to harmful levels. And I really have a problem with this statistic because uh, those the, the the harmful level people are self um, identifying. So they've gone out and they've done a questionnaire of thousands of you know a representative sample of New Zealanders. Do you drink alcohol? How much are you drinking? So people themselves are telling. Yes, I do. And here is the number of units I have a week. And from that, they've extrapolated the small number of people drinking to harmful levels. People lie. Yeah. I lied. I lied. I didn't tell the truth. And what's more, even if we're not lying intentionally, we're not aware often of what a standard drink unit is. So we might say, oh, I have two. I just have two glasses a night. Now, I don't know about you, but my <laughs> glasses of wine were buckets. <laughs> You know, my glass, my one glass of wine was actually three standard drink units yeah. when I actually measured it. So I thought I was having two wines. I was having six standard drinks and mm. I was often having more than my two. So I just have a problem with these statistics. The liquor industry loves to say all of these people are drinking moderately. They shouldn't be penalized by stricter regulations. And they, you know, draw on that statistic. But my belief is there's there are so many, so many people struggling privately with, with alcohol. Yeah. And the way, you know, you had young children, uh, you were still, you know, getting them to bed at night and having lunches made and, and getting, you know, your your husband taken care of when he's because you were living a traditional suburban housewife life at this point. But no one, I don't think from the way that you describe it, no one would have known um, and I'm just saying that just so that someone out there who's listening to this might might be asking themselves, how did she know that she had a problem? Like, what? how do I relate to that based on what they're experiencing as a listener out there to maybe look for these cues to maybe be triggers to question your relationship with alcohol? I always say the drinker knows. Hmm. You you know, you if you've got a nagging worry, if you're waking up at three in the morning, lying there and feeling bad or struggling through 9, 10, 11 a.m., you know, feeling under power and worried and there's a little nagging voice, the drinker knows. Yeah. But here's the thing about this, you know, successful life I was running. Yes, I was ticking all the boxes. The house was tidy. The kids were fed. I hugged them and loved them and all the rest of it. Compared with how I parent and, and do my life now, you know, it breaks my heart a little bit because I was I was ticking the boxes, but I was emotionally quite disconnected, you know, and not just when I was under the influence, but it, but all the rest of the day because I was I was tuned out from myself. I never sat enough with my brain sort of wide open and and not under the influence. I never sat for days or weeks on end and and really connected with myself and my emotional landscape and all the rest of it. And so, I, you know, I just wasn't connected. It, it is the word to use. I wasn't yeah. properly connected. And the way that I feel now, Sunny, you know, as a grounded, fully emotional, up and down, you know, human, mm -hmm. is just so great because I'm fully alive. I'm modeling to my kids. It's okay to be angry and cry and get over it. It's normal. You know, I'm just 100% there for them and myself all the time. And so it's really the contrast between what I thought was normal and what I can now see as normal that is so great. And, oh, my gosh, I'm just so grateful that I quit. <laughs> I am too, because clearly your story has inspired and helped so many people along that journey themselves. And um, how amazing is that? Sorry to cut you off, but oh how no. amazing is that given that my story is very 
ordinary. Now, I'm not putting myself down. Yes, it's great that I've got the ability to communicate, to articulate what's going on in my brain in a way that people like to can identify with, you know, and that's wonderful and that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. But I'm not special. I mean, there are a lot of people who do what I've done. They realise things aren't good. They pull the pin before it gets terrible. They turn their lives around and they just lift up and soar and go, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. There's a lot of people that do this. Yes. So, you know, just... I just feel it's really hard for people to, to, to put their hand up and say, I'm, I'm struggling here because it's so normalized in our society and it's so easy to hide. But I do think the tide is turning. I really do. I do feel hopeful that there is starting to be a lot more discussion. I don't know in America, but certainly in New Zealand about oh. people like me, you know. <laughs> Yes, exactly. I, I was just before we um, got on our, our interview today, I was reading a New York Times uh, article from earlier this summer uh, around the new sobriety movement. And I have some questions for you around that, because I know your new book that will be coming out in 2020, um, Wine O'Clock is a Crock, I think fits in from what I understand uh, that it will fit in beautifully with this. And I think there is a huge um, tide turning here in the United States around this with bars popping up all over the place, serving mocktails or, you know, the, uh, really uh, a sober curious movement for sure. Um, but well, and I want to, you know, you've touched on a lot of things here in the last few minutes that I want to unpack with you, but if we could just back up a little bit, because how you came to this, um, it was not overnight and you made, but there was a pivotal day um, for you, September 6th, 2011. That was the day you quit drinking. Can you lead us up through your decision to stop and how you how you actually implemented that? Yeah, so like I say, I'd had this internal dialogue that I'd been acutely aware of running for a good two years. And in that time, the voice in my head that was worried was getting louder. The drinking was progressing. So I could see that I was needing more, you know, to feel full um, and any incidences of sloppiness were getting worse if we went out, you know, stumbling a bit and slurring. And the other thing that I was doing in those two years was trying every trick in the book to moderate. <laughs> I was, you know, I was doing the whole alternate your drinks. I was trying to have days off. I... I got a book out of the library that said I should get a notebook and write down how you're feeling every time you have a drink. I mean, I did that for one night because all I wrote was, I'm feeling like a drink. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so I was really, I was very acutely aware of all these things. It was getting worse. I was getting more worried and nothing was working in terms of moderating. And then what happened on a Monday night, the 5th of September, um, we'd had quite a heavy drinking weekend, I, and, but on the Monday afternoon, you know, the voice in my head trying to convince me to drink was quite loud, and I said to my husband, let's get a bottle of wine, and he said, oh, no, let's have an alcohol-free night, you know, it's Monday night, and I was like, yeah, yeah, good idea, you know, <laughs> trying to be all casual, and um, he then went and took our boys to their scout meeting, boy scout meeting, and while he was gone, I raced down to the bottle shop and bought not one but two bottles of wine. I raced home and I spent the next hour doing all my housewifey duties, you know, vacuuming the rice up and off the floor and filling up the bath for the baby and giving him in and out the bath, jammies on, blinds down, lamps on, everything looked good. And the whole time I was doing that, I basically sculled a bottle of wine mm. so fast. And it, right before my husband was due home, I sort of panicked and thought, oh, gosh, he's going to see that I haven't had this alcohol-free night. I'm going to hide the bottle. Mm. And I, I got down on my hands and knees and I, I reached into the back of the cupboard and I hid the empty bottle of wine that I'd just finished. And then I got back up and I opened the second bottle and I poured it out as if I'd just, you know, started. And he got home and sort of had a laugh about, oh, see, you couldn't make it. He had no idea really, you know, what was going on for me. Yeah. And um, we proceeded to drink that bottle. Uh, I had most of it, to be fair. You know, it was just another Monday night binge. But then I woke up at three in the morning and I just, I was, this is my rock bottom. I was utterly horrified because 
I was trying to control and moderate. I knew things were wrong. And yet here was a new dysfunctional behavior. I'd hidden an empty bottle. Mm -hmm. And a lot of problem drinkers hide empties and a lot of them do it for a long time. For me, I did it once and that was it because I could see where it was heading. And I just, that's when I just made my decision. I sat on the loo in tears mm -hmm. and I just thought to myself, I cannot do this anymore. And I had this little moment of clarity and I thought the problem isn't me. The problem is the alcohol. You know, the problem isn't me. The problem is the alcohol. If I take the alcohol away, the problem is gone. And with that, I had this tiny little kernel of strength, which was gone because my addiction had just stripped me of any sense of, you know, empowerment. And I just had this tiny little thought, it's not me, it's the alcohol. I'm taking the alcohol away. And that was uh, that was it. I made the decision. I haven't touched a drop since. Yeah, and wow. And and you also, Lada, I think what's interesting um, is that you decided to go it solo. Instead of marching to a 12-step meeting the next day, you took a very different approach, which is actually how we landed here talking about your writing. Um, so you can can you tell us about how you made that decision and how you made it through solo if someone else out there doesn't feel the resonance with the 12-step stuff. Yeah, so we have AA in New Zealand. It's not huge like like in America perhaps, but it is here and it's solid and it helps a lot of people. It's great. Mm -hmm. I knew there were meetings in my community. I could I could I drove past the church and I but I was too nervous to go in. And I'm kind of a solo determined sort of traveler. So I just thought, no, I'm gonna do it myself. Um, which was, you know, in, in hindsight foolish, but that's the way I was setting out to do it. And um, I just made this decision that I'd, I'd write to myself every day because I actually wrote myself a letter with a pen on a piece of paper on my, on my day one. Dear Lotta, you know, <laughs> yeah. I am stopping drinking. And I really liked that feeling of writing that letter, so I thought I'm going to do that every day. And um, because I type faster than I write, I, I decided to do it on an online blogging template. I knew that they were freely available. And, I, you know, there's a million blogs in the world. I thought no one would read it. And I just started <laughs> writing this anonymous blog, basically writing letters to myself every day. And I had a very upbeat voice in print that I didn't, necessarily feel in person even on my hard days I would write posts that were full of exclamation marks and quite chirpy and so it really buoyed me along this process of blogging and being honest about what was in my head you know getting all of these twisted um, private thoughts out of my head and onto the screen through the keyboard was really really empowering and um, and so that was what I did and uh, you know we know what happens. People slowly started reading it. I built up a community around the blog. People left me comments. It was amazing. And suddenly I wasn't alone. And I think, you know, if that hadn't happened, I probably would have got myself to meetings because I really, really believe you. it's vital that you connect to people who understand what you're going through. My husband is an amazing man, but he is not an addict. He doesn't understand what it's like to not be able to stop at just one wine. And so talking to people who just knew and, and were so warm and kind was just absolute gold. And so that's why I'm so solidly sober today, because I found this great support anonymously online. And, you know, that's I've now turned this into this website where it's available to so many other people. Yeah. And so the it sounds like no matter what approach one takes, the sense of community is a vital ingredient to uh, especially the first year, but definitely even beyond. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. And also um, people who get sober, pretty much every single one of us, we want to help the next person along because we know it's like, oh, my gosh. This is so great. Who knew I could live without alcohol and feel so good? We want to help that next person. That's why AA works. That's why, you know, online recovery works. We want to give them a hand up. You know, it's like you you got you got to, you know, we know what it's like. We know what you're going through. Yes, it's hard at first. You've got to learn all these new ways of being. You've got to learn how to be emotional. You've got to learn how to socialize without a drink in your hand. We get it. And but, you know, persevere it's worth it and so there's this lovely lovely sense of community honestly it's I implore people don't go it alone tap into whatever network you can go to meetings go online anonymously 
but talk to people who understand because it will really, really help you along. Yes. And, um, and I want to, you know, continue on the journey with you. We're right at about the time for our break. So we'll go ahead and do that. I am joined today by Lada Dan, a blogger and author. Um, she had a best-selling memoir that came out um, several years ago called Mrs. D is Going Without. And we're talking about some of that story um, where she chronicles the her journey um, in her first year of sobriety. Um, and uh, when we come back from the break, we will continue the, the discussion and talk about also her upcoming book, Wine O'Clock is a Crock, and some of the new sobriety movement that's uh, really creating quite a stir, I think, um, it sounds like, both in the United States and in New Zealand. Um, so we will be back in just a few. You're listening to Sunny in Seattle. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. I'm Dr. Anthony Leisowitz, and this is Climate Connections. At the Dickinson College Farm in Pennsylvania, students harvest more than crops. They also learn how to harvest energy from the sun. Staff member Matt Steinman says that since 2007, the farm's large solar array has fed electricity to the grid. But then beyond that, we saw ourselves as a solar education facility. So working with college students and apprentices at the farm, we've installed several of our own solar projects. Some students would come and just help hang a few solar panels, but others really got involved in installations. For example, one physics major helped build what Steinman calls the Solar Wheeler. It's an electric utility cart with solar panels on the roof. The panels feed power to the cart's rechargeable batteries. We use that for day-to-day vegetable harvest and other odd jobs on the farm. Solar panels are also used to charge an electric tractor, and farm apprentices live in off-grid solar-powered yurts. Steinman says that working with these systems helps to demystify them. And that's beneficial, whether or not students decide to pursue careers in solar. We hope that they'll be educated consumers when they become homeowners, you know, five, ten years down the road. So I think that helps, you know, just kind of prime the pump for the solar future. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, joined today by blogger and author Lotta Dan, talking about her best-selling memoir, Mrs. D is Going Without. Um, And so, Lotta, you know, in that first year, one of the things that I noticed is that you had some really high highs and some really low lows. And um, I'm wondering, you know, if you can speak to that a little bit for someone out there who might be in their first year. Um, what they can expect or how to handle that, some of your the best tools or resources that you found that helped you make it through. Yeah, I mean, it's a roller coaster. I always say, hold on tight. You're in for the bumpy <laughs> ride. <laughs> you know, I, I drank from the age of 15 until the age of 39. And so I had never really learned any emotional coping strategies. And I, because my drinking habit was largely categorized by a daily thing, um, I could have big binges, but I was, I was a five o'clock every night kind of person. I had a, I had sort of this deadened experience of life. And when I took the alcohol away, I was just all over the show, up and down and, oh my goodness, crying and yelling. And really it was, it was full on (laughs) yeah Um, and you know there is just an element of gritting your teeth and getting through it um leaning on the people who have been there before and understanding that it's normal 
and that you know you it, it does calm down it just it just does it calms down because you get used to feeling the emotions and it calms down because you don't react so strongly to things so there's just a process of adjustment and you know for me we we relocated cities i had some really tricky things going on emotionally some things i've never written about because they're private to the wider family you know life life happens mm-hmm. and i just had to kind of get through um I've slowly learned better ways to cope with emotions, things to do to nourish and ground myself, you know, cheesy things like walking the dog, doing yoga if I can, just making myself a cup of tea and really appreciating the moment. But also, you know, this is the other thing I always say to people. If you adopt a really open and curious attitude like, okay, this is interesting, what's happening here? and you sort of become quite curious about the process, that can also be really helpful because it's fascinating. It's fascinating learning about yourself. (laughs) I mean, it really is. So throw the kitchen sink at it. You know, read books, listen to podcasts, connect with people, talk about it. It becomes quite obsessive in that first year, and all of that calms down. Yeah. And I loved, you know, you just alluded to this, but I loved your Oprah aha moment. Um, And I'll just read a quote here um, that you realized at some point that you being overly emotional without the wine showed you how unemotional you were with it. And I just think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, And I'm curious, you know, from that moment that you saw that, that Oprah episode, Tell us about the relationship between your use of alcohol and your emotions. Yeah, so I'm quite fascinated by this because it's about denial, right? And when you think of someone being in denial, you often think of them being actively in denial. I'm not a problem drinker. I'm fine. And everyone's looking going, buddy, you've got a problem. I think denial is much more subtle than that and, and blissful. I was in what I would call blissful denial. I genuinely had no idea that I was an emotion avoider. I thought that I was a party girl that was getting a bit um, aging a bit and that the wine was catching up with me. And it wasn't until I took the wine away and I got super emotional. I had my moment watching Oprah where she was interviewing a man about uh, overeating actually. And he made a comment about, well, all of these behaviors are just about numbing emotion. And I literally sat and I paused the television and I went, hang on a minute. Whoa. (laughs) Does, you know, and it was literally so cliched having an aha moment. Thanks to Oprah. And I sat on my sofa and I went, hang on a minute. Have I been avoiding my emotions my whole life? And when it was such a revelation, such a revelation. And that's when, that's when everything flipped and got really interesting. I wasn't, you know, getting sober for me wasn't just about breaking a little habit and learning how to go to parties and not drink. That's when I realized, okay, getting sober is about me, about me actually learning how to be an emotional human being. And yeah. so it really was, you know, that that is what it's all about, I believe, fundamentally. <laughs> yes, and I wanted yeah. to actually ask a little follow-up question on that because you know, in my line of work, we talk about feeling emotions, feeling your feelings, processing emotions. But when you look at like the nitty gritty of a human life, and I really wanted to hear it from you because you didn't come to this journey with a language around this, with being, I remember in the book, you you would mention several times, like navel gazing was not something that you were very oh, comfortable with. No. So how, how, what does it look like, Lada? to actually feel the feelings like what if you're tell us like really tangibly what does that look like okay at first it's awful (laughs) it's like it's like wearing a a a torture suit full of nails oh god I mean I would literally walk around my house you know anger being angry like really and and I just wanted to go away or sadness sadness was my least favorite emotion I did not want to feel sad ever mm. and and I had to because I wasn't able to escape so feeling that that was probably worse anger's quite active you know you're kind of angry and there's something you're angry at sadness sometimes it's just a day of overwhelming you know or or 
or what's another one that's not so much sadness but just discomfort mm. and it's just it was just awful I just honestly hated it now I feel quite gentle about it I feel like no oh, it's okay to be sad you know what why am I sad there's a reason I'm sad I'm just sad I need to do have a cup of tea or it's just a sad day put my slippers on like I just accept it as a thing but I'd spent all my life not allowing myself to go there. You know, I just started telling the story about how three years after I got sober, I was having a conversation with a girlfriend about my parents' divorce. And we were sitting on the back deck and we would started talking about it and I started uncontrollably sobbing. It was mm. so intense. These sobs came out of my belly, deep, deep in my gut. I wasn't expecting it. It was uncomfortable, but I couldn't control it. And these sobs came out and she was lovely and we kept on talking. And the next day and ever since, Sonny, I have felt more resolved about my parents' divorce and our family splitting up than I ever have. It happened 15 years prior. Mm. And yet mm. I had never allowed myself to properly, you know, feel what I felt about it. The thing about all these things is I can tell you these stories. I, you know, you can hear my words. Listeners can hear my words. But until you, and it seems obvious, until you really experience something like that, it is so fundamentally groundbreaking and beautiful. I mean, this is the thing. I am grateful for my, for my drinking problem because without it, I might have kept on having my wines at 5 o'clock and never experienced what I'm experiencing now, which is just a deep connection with myself and how I feel about things. It's honestly, I heartily recommend it, people. <laughs> yeah, and I actually, I want to read here an excerpt from the book because it's this is one where there was a time in my life where I thought, oh my gosh, there is no way in the world that I will ever stop drinking completely. Like maybe I'll limit it, maybe a couple days a week or something, but I will never give it up completely. And I have, man, I've done a 180 on that. I'm, I still, alcohol is still a part of my life, um, but it has dwindled in frequency and volume. And the more that I learn, the more people like you I talk to, the more research that I do, the more I am cooling on alcohol. And I, I don't know when it would happen, but I can absolutely see that I would at some point give it up completely. But I think that one of the things that I always wrestled with when I was thinking about this was, oh my gosh, well, the desire to drink will always be there. Even if I stop, it's going to be a very, you know, uh, white knuckle death grip, try to hold on to this. And what I'm, I want to read this because you just articulate this so beautifully and I can see that you mean it. Um, so you write, I know I can never have just one. And frankly, I don't want just one anyway. Even if I were told today that I could suddenly magically be a moderate drinker again, I wouldn't pick up alcohol. If I were told today that I have an incurable illness and only six months to live, I wouldn't pick up alcohol. Why would I bother bringing alcohol into the picture again after having done all this hard work in order to experience complete freedom from it? I don't want alcohol in my life. Don't want it. Don't need it. Don't miss it. I don't think it has anything to offer me that I don't already have. I have fun. I have laughter. I have sadness. I have joy. I have real authentic actions and reactions. And that, that is bloody awesome. I am truly free from my alcohol addiction. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you miss it at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. And this is what I love about this new sober curious movement and people starting to kind of open their eyes and think, well, hang on, how is this serving me? Because even if you're a moderate drinker and you're not sort of struggling, you know, it is having an impact on your overall experience of life. And I've got a sister who's just quit um, and she wasn't really struggling that bad at all. And she's having this great time where she's like, oh, this is actually quite a fundamental, di fundamentally different way to live and really good. Like she's just really enjoying it. So I think it's worth anyone exploring their relationship. And certainly in this world we live in where the tide has gone way too far in the direction of just glorifying it at every turn. Mm -hmm. And so I love that people are starting to go, well, hang on a minute. Is this actually necessary? But also what's this actually doing to my experience of things? What does it do, you know, when I'm celebrating and having alcohol to celebrate? How's that impacting on my celebration? Because I can tell you, when I 
when I naturally celebrate something really good now and I get a natural endorphin rush, mm-hmm. it is so much better than a boozy, boozy dopamine hit. Yes, that's exactly. I, I Will you speak a little bit more about the neurochemistry? Because this is what's really fascinating to me is um, how our natural neurochemistry really provides us everything we need. And we don't need these huge surges of dopamine that then have a very negative consequent on the backside of it. Yeah. Do yeah. I mean, alcohol, alcohol guarantees you a dopamine hit. You have the drink and it, and it encourages your brain to release dopamine, which is the feel good chemical. Now, over time, the more that you drink and rely on alcohol to feel good, your brain actually adapts so that it puts out less dopamine. It down-regulates is what it's called. And so over time, especially if you're drinking really heavily, um, when, you're not, when you are not actually taking in the drug, which it is, but let's say you're not drinking, mm-hmm. you drop below a natural baseline of dopamine. So you actually feel depleted. You feel low. You know, that's what a hangover is. That's what that day after kind of low mood is about. And so then you need more of the drug to lift you up to just a normal level, let alone any higher. So that's just what it does to us when we drink. Take it away and you rely on other things to get dopamine and endorphins and other sort of brain chemistry. Now, the the real highs from a real, you know, real rush, like when you're at a concert or it's Christmas and you're surrounded by all your loved ones, those kind of natural highs, they don't come along often in sobriety. They come along, you know, when they naturally come in life. So you have to kind of adjust to the fact that you're not going to get that daily little hit of dopamine or whatever. But when they do come, the, the pure feeling of them, I've actually literally lost my breath from Mm -hmm. getting hit with feel good feelings. It was Christmas day and we were sitting around the table and I just had this moment and it was quite intense. (laughs) It sounds cheesy, but again, when you experience it, it's amazing. And I just took in everyone around me and I just felt the love and it just hit me and I literally caught my breath. I mean, it was unbelievable, better than any rush I've ever got from any chemical. Mm, That's beautiful. And the other one, the other one I just want to quickly mention is serotonin, because that is the that is the the brain chemical that's all about contentment, and it's a gentle, lovely, um, gentle is the word, sort of slow, beautiful feeling um, serotonin, and that that comes often in sobriety because it's that. You're panning around your house in your slippers and you're just feeling like, this is good, I'm feeling good. It's a very lovely, gentle way to feel. And you don't get a lot of that when you're drinking. And I I appreciate that a lot now. It's just the calm, gentle feeling. Mm, Yeah. Um, You know, another thing that I wanted to ask about, because it does kind of relate to the new sobriety movement. Um, There was a pivotal moment in in your journey for many months, I think months, uh, you had, you did not call yourself an alcoholic and then you had a very transformative moment and things shifted. And do you mind sharing, you know, why you resisted that label initially and then why claiming it changed so much for you? Well, it, it, it carries so much weight. I mean, we know how powerful language is. And at the moment in our society, the word alcoholic conjures up all manner of dark and serious, you know, the guy in the gutter kind of thing. And so I resisted the label just because I wasn't that. I'm not that. Um, In in addiction circles, like proper treatment circles, they're very cautious about using labels like that as well because it can stigmatise. So basically it's up to the individual. I now choose to call myself an alcoholic. I had a moment when we were driving in the car on holiday with the kids not long after I'd quit drinking and I was literally just gazing out the window at the fields rolling by. And for some reason I just had this thought to myself, I'm an alcoholic. And it was a very, very moving, very significant moment for me. It was like a full acceptance of my addiction, what I was, what I was doing, everything. So I now choose to call myself an alcoholic. I'm quite comfortable with that label. I quite like the drama of it. I'm a bit of a show-off. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, I, go, <laughs> I choose to use it. But I know that it doesn't work for everyone. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter. If you don't want to call yourself an alcoholic, you know, who cares? Do what works for you. But, yeah, I just I, I, I choose to call myself an alcoholic because that's what I am. 
Um, it sums up my experience and I'm comfortable labeling myself as such. Yeah. And I, that's the one thing I'm, I was curious to get your thoughts because the, the main criticism that I've heard about the new sobriety movement is that it kind of leaves out of the conversation, the words alcoholic and alcoholism words that at least the, the writer that I was um, looking at said need to be destigmatized and they're being left out of the conversation when we talk about sober curious. And I was just curious what your thoughts were on that. Well, why does it need to be destigmatized? I mean, who does that serve? I, I just don't really care. I mean, I just, <laughs> I just, I just say, you know, it's like I just want to talk to people individually. I want to talk to that person who's right now feeling struck, like they're struggling. Does it matter to them if they use the word? If they don't, if it, you know, no, it just matters to them that they get well. Yeah. And so, I just really think on an individual level, there's probably really good arguments why language matters and it should be, you know, but I, I. I'm not clued into those. I have to be honest with you. I just look at what's going to work for the individual. If you don't want to call yourself an alcoholic, don't. If you do, do. Whatever gets you well. All I'm, all I ever say to people is be honest with yourself about what's happening for you and know that you can get out and get free. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Sorry, I don't know if that answers your question. Oh, but... it absolutely does, Lada. Yeah, I mean, you're in the middle of this, and I just was curious what your thoughts were. I, I, I had my own thoughts, but I didn't really feel like I had a right to, to. It really have them because I don't feel like I'm in the groups that they're talking about that, you know, has the right to speak about it personally. So I was just curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I think destigmatizing in general absolutely needs to happen. And that's going to happen just by more ordinary people standing up and saying, I'm not drinking alcohol because I can't control it. Yeah. And just making that normalized and acceptable. You know, it's crazy that alcohol is the only drug that when you stop taking it, you, you feel like you're the one who's got a problem. I mean, <laughs> It's just mental. So we definitely need to shift that. And maybe language is a part of that. But yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just really focused on what's going to help individuals right now. Yeah. Um, really, it's just being honest with themselves and, and, and doing what they need to do to get to a happy place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to switch gears just a little bit. Um, and I was really inspired by your journey to publishing because what started as a blog, that was a huge uh, component of your recovery. And then of course, an inspiration to so many people who came to follow it on a daily basis. Um, it, it turned into the book, Mrs. D is going without. And I was curious, I mean, we have a lot of folks in our listening audience who are interested in writing a book. And do you mind just sharing how that came about for you? Because I have to say the way you did it, I was like, Whoa, that's brave and awesome. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I have to preface this by saying I live in a small country. We have four and a half million people. It, it, it's a little place and maybe things can be, get done here more easily than other places. My story is, is, is kind of is a hard one for people to hear because it was so easy. I started the blog. I, 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 I gathered a following. I felt like I had a story to tell. You know, I wanted basically I wanted more people to know about the online world where you could get support. And that's why I wanted to write a book and put it out so that more people could then tap into what I was tapped into online. And so I literally just emailed a publisher and said, hey, here I am. Here's what I'm doing. Um, it probably helped that my husband had a high profile, but they could see my writing. They could see my how I communicated. And um, they just emailed me back and said, yes, <laughs> Give me a contract. I mean, it was that simple. And here we are. <laughs> and here we are. I mean, it also goes to show that this, you know, and, and when the book came out and I went on the TV and they told my story and I had this huge amounts of media because there's so few, I mean, this is the crazy thing, there's so few people talking honestly like this. The fact that I was a middle-class housewife, um, Owning up to having a problem with the drink, you know, was a groundbreaking. It's, even now there's more people five years later. But at the time, no one was doing that. So I really think I just got there at the right time. And, um, you know, the book came out and it did well. And now I'm on number three. Yay. Speaking of which, that's where I wanted to go next. Um, I, from looking at your blog, it sounds like you're going to get a little bit feistier with this next book. Uh, <laughs> Can you tell us, okay, Wine O'Clock is a crock, uh, expected in 2020, it sounds like. What What's going to happen here, Lada? <laughs> so the subtitle is What's Really Going On With Women and Alcohol. Mm. 
And the book is two things, really. One, it is a whole lot of women's stories. I've interviewed 21 women and got their in-depth stories about their relationship with alcohol from childhood through to now. Some of them are drinking, some of them are sober. And I've told their stories in their own words. So they are lovely little, powerful, really revealing stories. And then interspersed amongst those stories, I'm writing a whole bunch of chapters looking at a whole bunch of things. And yeah, I am, I'm going places I've not gone before. Um, I'm looking at the way that we're targeted by the liquor industry. I'm mm. looking at the way that social media algorithms are used to, you know, push content into our feeds that really plays on our emotions. Mm. I'm looking at the laws that are in place that are just, you know, meaning that we're awash with this stuff and how stigmatizing and isolating that can be for people who are struggling. And I'm looking at just the sort of things like the impacts that it has on us as women, um, whether it be physical safety, emotional disconnection, and also the underlying causes that might be. I mean, I'm looking at everything. It's it's such a huge topic, uh, and I'm not a you know I could do a master's thesis on every aspect, but I'm just doing I'm doing little little kind of eye opening I hope tasters of all of these things interspersed with these amazing stories of women. And what I'm hoping is that the book just serves as a a really interesting heart felt eye-opening thing for women to start thinking okay so I'm being played yeah I'm being played here is this serving me what's going on and maybe they could maybe I mean even if they don't change their own drinking habits they could just be aware that for a lot of women there's a lot of stuff going on in this area yes absolutely a much needed book Uh, And that really does bring us to the end of our hour. Um, I have been joined today by blogger and author Lotta Dan. Um, You may know her best-selling memoir, Mrs. D is Going Without, which we discussed for most of the show today. But look up, uh, look forward to Wine O'Clock is a Crock. Um, It sounds like that'll be coming out in uh, 2020. And, you know, Lotta, with uh, like less than a minute left, I just wanted to ask you, you know, uh, what would you want to thank your eight years ago self for at this moment, you know, looking back. Oh, that makes me feel like crying. I just (laughs) want to say thank you so much for being so brave. You know, just thank you for being so brave and for having faith that you could change things because you have. Yes. (laughs) And have inspired so many others to do the same. So thank you so much, Lotta Dan, for being on Sunny in Seattle. Thank you for having me. Goodbye from New Zealand. Oh, absolutely. And for those out there who um, would like to know more about her uh, Living Sober um, site, that is livingsober.org.nz, and you can find her there. You have been listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. Go enjoy your weekend. Take care, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.